0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a selection of files touching on opera, Sondheim, neuroscience, looms, and electronic voice phenomena. And we begin this time with the man who's giving Northern Ireland a new place in opera, composer, writer, conductor, Connor Mitchell. Mitchell, who's artist-in-residence at Wexford Festival Opera into 2023, is best known for his operas which pack a political punch, such as his award-winning Abomination, a DUP opera, which looked at that party's less-than-inclusive attitude to homosexuality in the six counties, and presumably elsewhere too. For Wexford, Mitchell created Lacey... Selenite, which he calls a watercolour of a short opera, inspired by the pioneering silent films of Georges Méliès. He spoke to Culturephile about how Stephen Sondheim made him understand the power of musical theatre, about his Wexford mini-opera, and about the subjects that make him burn to write.
1: A creature from the moon, it says. An He says. Seen before,
2: it says, a sight to give, oh Lord, nonsense. My dream when I was a little boy was always to be someone that could simultaneously work in opera and new music theatre in that kind of post-sontimey kind of planet. And this is actually the first time in my career that's been happening simultaneously. You currently have another show running in in Belfast. Uh, Propaganda the Musical, currently playing at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast. And it's an old-fashioned musical comedy with a a serious conceit underneath it. If I travel in a car for three and a half hours, I go to the opposite end of the island and in the Lyric there's this huge big band show and I come down here... um, treading between 1650 and the present day, and symphony orchestras and a completely different style. So for me, it's like I want to imitate the career of Leonard Bernstein in an Irish fashion, and this is probably the first time it's actually really happened for me, so it's great.
0: Doing those two things at once, sort of as you, as you that it points out the two sides of what you do. And I was sort of wondering to myself, like, what, what is the difference between musical theatre and opera when they're both done as art practice? You know, like a Sondheim show might have all the power of the ring and all the subtlety and the complexity, you know. So wh- why would they, why are they different things?
2: I grappled with that for years and years, and I used to think that musical theatre and opera had a midway point. And that midway point was probably somewhere around Pacific Overtures or um, Populist Strauss or... ...even a musical like Swingy Todd... ...but actually the older I get and the more I get into both forms... I ...now I actually see that there's value in a separation... ...I see that there is an engagement in, with popular song... ...in contemporary musical theatre... ...that brings us to the world of the 32-bar song... ...of engagement with melodic form... ...and the manipulation of the audience through thematic song development and contemporary opera is different in that the text and the story i think can play a, can play a, to a lesser degree can be slightly lesser than the innovation that needs to happen in the musical structures and that rather than being something that i thought there's a way to blend these i actually now see a massive strength in a separation and going if you like musical theater be true to musical theatre. I don't like it when composers enter art forms from a point of negativity. So they start to write a musical or they start to, let's say it happens in Christmas shows all the time. They say, I'm writing a Christmas show, but it's not a panto. I say, well, you know, what's wrong with that? I used to always think, oh musicals, you know, let's 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 not like everything that makes the musicals. Let's go for absolute sophistication, you know, and intellectualism. But now I actually I look back at the musicals that I really like or the operas that I really like and it's actually those truths to their genre and the origin and their audiences that I think gives them profound identity so in the case of something like um, The Great American Songbook or popular musicals of the 50s and 60s it's that popular song and Americanism that actually adds value to the art form and sophisticating that itself as opposed to throwing it all out is what forces you to be in love with the actual zone you're, you're developing. I mean, I remember having dinner with you know the late Stephen Sondheim towards the end of his, uh, you know, the last few years of his life, and he had stopped calling himself a composer and started referring to himself as a musical theatre comedy writer, which, like, is almost contrary to everything we know about him. You know, he was a sophisticate, he was a dramatist, he advanced the form... But actually, he saw himself as advancing the Annie Get Your Guns, the Oklahomas, the South Pacifics. And when you look at it from that point of view, that he's sophisticating something that's already working, he's a genius. So he's not being distrustful of the form. He's sophisticating a form that he's already in love with. I think you can do exactly the same with opera. But to try and blend them and say they're exactly the same, I think is untruthful to them. A lot of my work does accidentally meet in the middle, um, and I kind of love that about it, but it's never intentional. It might be that two weeks into writing it, I get bored and I want to go back into Melody or play with Artifice, but uh, I do now love the idea that two different audiences can exist and somewhere along the line they might get confused and accidentally walk into the wrong art form and be in love with both.
0: You mentioned Sondheim there. Is is—is someone like him what drew you into? I mean, if we call it singing on stage with movements, uh, you know, either musical theatre or opera, is is Sondheim somebody who's, who inspired your direction to move into musical theatre or opera? Uh,
2: yeah. Fundamentally, what he did with the musical theatre was put a lot more store into structure and character. So the song not only as a vehicle for the writer but for the character, you know, uh, from the minute they wake up to the minute they reach that scene. In the same kind of fashion as Harold Pinter did with strip plays. so suddenly you have actors able to sing a song that has layers and layers and layers of backstory and forward motion, and actors can get their teeth into them, so suddenly it's not a song, suddenly it's a moment in a scene that just happens to be beautifully structured into the form of song, that's really what drew me into it because, you know, for a short disastrous period of my life, I was an actor and I was always drawn to theatres from a very young age. Even though I was a musician and I was playing instruments and in practice rooms, it was the roar of the kind of stage that I always wanted to be around to show people costumes, you know, makeup, um, audiences, first nights. They always appealed to me a lot more than a recital on a Friday night or a fish down in Portadown Town Hall. It was that, and I think sometimes you're one or the other, and I think a, a great many musicians are drawn to that world more than the concert world. You know, I include, like, you know, the Mozarts of this world and that, who and Philip Glasses, who I think are theatre people who just happen to be geniuses at music. But Steve's sophistication in how he approached character and revolutionised the subjects that we can talk about Steve Sondheim's work owes more to fr- the you know, new wave cinema of the 1950s and 60s than it really does to the back catalogue of American drama. And that's something he brought to it that we're still seeing today in contemporary opera and contemporary music theatre. So yeah, huge, huge influence, as I think he was on every single person in the art form. There is a kind of tacit agreement between all composers that the zenith of their career might be writing an opera. I don't agree with that. I think that there are some people that engage with drama and character that should be working in the operatic form. But I've seen countless young composers who have never seen a play and don't read new plays and don't go to the theatre say to me, I want to write an opera. On many occasions they get an opportunity to do that on either a small or a very large scale but because they have no interest in drama or engagement with it there is a, a, a want in the libretto or there's a want in the dramatical form that they've taken so the story or the adaptation or the text may not actually have space for music and it was actually a perfectly fine play. That I think is always problematic. Opera, unlike a lot of other art forms, has inherited a frame around itself. And that's the frame of how we present it through opera houses, huge forces, opening nights, and all that. That I am personally very resistant to because it can create a sentiment of it doesn't matter what we're watching as long as we're watching. Which I always think actually the better way around is to, to convince an audience to get up and want to buy that ticket because they're interested in what might actually be said on stage. That said, there is also a beauty about that, that frame that has developed and that many people keep alive, that it can create something that you can manipulate within, I think the Royal Opera House did that very, very well with um, Anna Nicole, in a sense. You know, the artifice of the Royal Opera House and that opening night and everything that comes with it and the gold and the glitz and, you know, the poshness does create a kind of foil and then when you do something modern or you do something which is very left field in terms of subject it could completely subvert the art form itself.
0: I imagine one of the pleasures, uh, though, is to kind of stage conversations that you that that have a vitality. I mean, I think I'm thinking of Abomination in particular there, but you know, in in mass and so forth, there are ideas and conversations which must power them rather than you know
2: I I'm, I need to write an opera or there's a musical idea I'm looking for.
0: There's a conversation that you want to stage, maybe.
2: I think if you're if you're a playwright or a dramatist living now, and I very much consider myself. Those first, you know, I don't sit down every day and write a kitchen sink drama. But what I do is I, when I approach writing something, I see an audience and I see a theatre context. Um, There just always happens to be music. So I want to say something about the world around me at that point. And for me, being a kind of aggressive political Northern Irish person, I like seeing something that I can challenge in a public way, or discuss in a public way, and that's generally contemporary politics. I find those subjects, just, you know, the rub of them makes me work faster and I get much more interested in developing the ideas. I burn a little more when I start to write them. For me, there is much more currency and value in creating that kind of work for contemporary audiences.
0: I guess having said that, then, we we wonder about uh, what your. are the piece you're doing here in Wexford, which is that you are taking an old source. What, what was it that attracted you to, to Melies?
2: I've always been fascinated by the fact that the early film was considered a magic trick or an illusion, and that George Melies had created these set of films that were lost for a period of time and then rediscovered, but chief among those was A Trip to the Moon, um, which was... There's a famous image which is of a moon growing and a... Bishop kind of landing in her eye and that movie, while it's considered one of the birth of cinema moments, was at the turn of the century, it was made in 1902 and I always got very, very fascinated that everyone in 1902 thought the world was changing for the better, you know, it was kind of just, you know, fantasy act like, kind of spirit but what they didn't know around the corner was the First World War and the end of Empire so all the optimism in that film feels like coming from a point of naivety. So I wanted to look at that little moment and take three characters, and those three characters each have a micro narrative that is to do with the concept of voyage.
0: Are you imagining that
2: this um that, that the Meliers project could develop into a bigger piece? No, absolutely not. I think this is it. I don't. I don't want to push it any further because actually, I think it. It delivers what it needs to deliver. And at the end of it, I'm very, very satisfied.
0: Now that you have been in the house and you have this uh, other year to go, you know, so in 2023, we are expecting something massive to hit the main stage.
2: So we're trying to figure out what form that will be next year. Rosetta has announced her three main stage operas and a programme of other events. And she has also called next year Women in War, Just creating a large-scale opera and putting on that space would be difficult. And actually, it might be inappropriate for an artist-in-residence to put a challenge to those three pieces. I would rather create something that could sit outside of them and comment on them or work with other performers or happening in a slightly different space, but of a similar scale. And I would certainly love some little part of Belfast to be talking to Wexford in whatever shape we create next year. Uh, If something is women in conflict, I mean, to be honest, in the latter 20th century, I think Belfast probably knows more about that than most other parts of the island.
0: Connor Mitchell there, and you heard music from Maraid Hurley Piano and the voices of Emily Hogarty, Amy Hewitt, Richard Shaffrey, and Owen Foran. Les Selenites is at the Jerome Hines Theatre at the National Opera House Wexford tomorrow, Sunday, at 11am. An enchanted loom where millions of flashing shuttles weave a dissolving pattern was how neuroscientist Charles Scott Sherrington envisaged the human brain. It's an image that resonated with Owen Boss of A New Productions when thinking about the onset of his wife Debbie Boss's epilepsy following brain surgery. It's also inspired a collaborative music and science project now at IMA. The Vernica area brings together a soprano, a violinist, a neuroscientist, a composer and a sound designer to create an interactive installation driven by sound and informed by Debbie his own epilepsy diaries, Marissa Brown went to meet the creators.
3: Charles Scott Sherrington talks really eloquently about uh, the brain, and in the 1940s he gave a number of keynote lectures about parts of the body, one was on the eye, but the, the, the one I obviously was interested in was on the brain, and he it equated the brain to an enchanted loom and how it was working. and He was referring to a Jacquard loom, which is a kind of one of the earliest forms of computing. I'm On Boss and I am the co artistic director of New Productions, a visual artist. Yeah, well, myself and Emily met in uh, Manchester. I was doing a uh, residency with uh, the Science Gallery in Dublin. It was based around uh, my wife Debbie Boss's epilepsy. And in 2014, Debbie had uh, a tumour removed from, uh, from her brain. And uh, surgery went fine, but uh, she uh, has epilepsy ever since. So. And it, it was over the Wernicke's area of the brain, which is in control of language and, and communication and in this residency you are teamed up with any researchers in trinity that you were interested in talking to and i uh, linked up with professor mark cunningham so the the jackard loom has so many threads and so many things going on and uh, the design is made on punch cards and When that's in operation, which we saw in Manchester when we went to the Museum of Science and Industry, all these kind of shuttles are flying and the the threads are flying and he equated it to this uh, enchanted loom. I kind of latched onto that and I kind of uh, decided to make a series of fabrics from that to develop a visual... Lexicon or visual language uh, around Debbie's narrative and Debbie's story. So, within those fabric pieces, there's like there's references to the medications she ta- takes or MRI scans of her brain. Uh, Mark had given me a reference point for a book called *Smell of Burning*, which is written by a neurophysiologist who whose brother had epilepsy. I'd given that to Debbie as an audio book because Debbie can't read anymore. Uh, and she loved it, but she found it interesting that the voice was the voice of the brother, not the person who, who suffered with the epilepsy. So she started to write these seizure diaries so that her voice could be heard. Debbie was uh, a trained singer, trained uh, soprano, and um, it was Matt Smith, our producer, said, is the like, Is there a music angle? What about Emily? Because Emily has a keen interest in uh, early computing, keen interest in mathematics, and she'd written a piece about a brain tumor. And so everything kind of had aligned.
4: I'm Emily Howard. I'm a composer, and I'm also based at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, where I teach composition, and I'm the director of PRISM and PRISM is the research centre, the RNCM Centre for Practice and Research in Science and Music. In terms of the, the musical material, um, kind of when you're making these things, you, you you ask questions and then suddenly something really clicks, you know, everything clicks on, and one of the questions... I went to Owen with was... Um, I remember Debbie was a soprano and I thought, right, which pieces did she really like to sing? And um, number one was um, Handel's aria, Ombra Mafu. I've written three sections, Ombra 1, Ombra 2 and Ombra 3. The first one is based um, on one phrase from this aria and it's, to begin with, is completely stretched so you wouldn't necessarily know that this was a phrase and it kind of gets... I think it's 18 minutes overall. Gets um, sort of faster and and it gets higher as well. And then it becomes and it becomes recognisable at some point if you know the piece, and otherwise it becomes recognisable as a phrase. I suppose Debbie describes feeling stuck and feeling like she kind of doesn't know what's going on, but she can't get out of the situation. And that's what's happening in the second one. There, you're sort of it's the very a slow down bit of the handle and just before the seizure and then this viola and the third one is um, based on one of the seizures. There's, there's a description from Debbie that, that as she's grating carrots and making dinner, the sound of the grating carrots be- becomes it begins to sound like grating concrete to her.
1: I'm Bo Fan Ma. I'm a composer and I work in prison as a postdoctoral research associate. I made this initial um, sound piece uh, which is like electronic music piece uh, back in the summer based on my understanding and my, my interpretation of Debbie's theory. And then we start to um, s- design a sort of structure in terms of how Emily's composition can, mm. can be put either on top of it or um, fighting against it. Inside, in the gallery room, w- when, people you, when people are around you and uh, you hear people walk within the space, and you, you, you probably you can notice how t- people are hearing different things uh, than what you're hearing at the moment, so, yeah, I, I think the, the context is everything there. You, you see what you see and you hear what you hear, and you can make the meaning out of everything.
4: I hope it's an exciting experience from a participator point of view. that It is amazing to be able to walk around a concert and see what you want to see. I love that situation.
3: What I would like people to kind of experience is that their being there really matters and that they're being there at the centre of that and the choices that they make within that gallery space because we do a split focus where singer over, singer Rosie is over one side and then Steven and the viola players over another. So you have to make a decision who you go to watch and where you hear it, where you watch it, where you see it. So, and then you bring your context to, to the exhibition as well. So the work becomes active and activated when you're there.
0: Owen Barr sending that report and you heard music from Rosie Middleton, mezzo-soprano, and Stephen Upshaw, violin. Tomorrow is the last day to visit the Wernicke region at Immer, so once you've seen Les Selenites, why not head straight up? The racket from the chrysanthemum-filled skies may have peaked, but Sowin persists, so for her latest file, Jennifer Walsh makes a playlist of the other sounds that might fill the air as the darkness slams down for the longer nights. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things.
5: They say the books you read as a child set the tone for your adult life. As a nine-year-old, I came across the Osborne Guide to the Supernatural World in the Dundrum Library. Published in 1979, the Osborne Guide to the Supernatural World, a book marketed somehow for children, is a terrifying read packed with pictures of vampires, witches, zombies and, most horrifying of all, photographs of ghosts, of hooded monks and people impaled on rods. For me, the book sparked off a great deal of nightmares, as well as a lifelong interest in ghosts, Ouija boards, witches and all things occult. It should come as no surprise, then, that Halloween is one of my favourite holidays. Over the years, I've amassed a great deal of music relating to Halloween. There is such a vast range of supernatural tunes out there. On the one hand, you have your classical pieces, Saint-Saëns, Dance Macabre, Mussorgsky's Night on Bear Mountain. Then you have your classic pop tunes, whether Monster Mash or Thriller or the theme from Ghostbusters. I'm not even going to get into the huge swathes of occult-themed metal, death metal and black metal you need to wade through. But the recordings least likely to make it onto your Halloween party playlists are the ones that are the most compelling. The Other World: Music and Song from Irish Tradition, is a gorgeous collection published by the National Folklore Collection at UCD, which draws on their archives to present recordings of jigs learned off the fairies, banshees' reels and tales of the strange experiences of brothers in rural Ireland. Les Voix du Monde, a three-CD box set featuring recordings from all over the globe, features the voices of genies, spirits and possessed masks. Most obscure of all, though, is perhaps Raymond Cass's The Ghost Orchid, An Introduction to EVP. Electronic voice phenomenon, EVP for short, are recordings which are supposedly made directly by ghosts. Not recordings of ghosts, but recordings made of silence, which turned out to feature ghostly voices when they were played back. When I lived in New York, I went along to the New York EVP meetup group. The organizer spoke about how he made EVP recordings. His apartment was located underneath the Triborough Bridge, so he would shut himself into his bedroom closet, the quietest space he had. Press record on a tape recorder. Whisper, "Is there anyone there?" Then fall silent for several minutes before stopping and rewinding the tape. He would do this over and over, listening back each time to see if anyone had tried to contact him. He told me he had had some success. Tiny fragments of sound, metallic whispers, even if muted and garbled. This is fascinating to me, that there are communities which regard ghosts as technologically advanced. That rather than making a sound, the spirits of your ancestors can directly intervene in a technological process, manipulating cassette tape or digital files to make their presence known. And that our role is simply to make the files, then hunt back through them, looking for traces of ghostly voices. Developing new forms of listening where tiny glitches, burps in static, the shift of the recorder in our hand, or the shadow of a lorry passing in the street below us can carry messages from beyond the grey.
0: That was Jennifer Walsh there on some of the less bombastic sounds of Salin, And don't forget the current File debate on the seasonal subject of fire, from the chemistry of creation to the poetics of combustion, is available right now from the Culturefile Weekly page on the Lyric site or wherever you get your podcasts. And that brings to a close this here edition of the Culturefile Weekly. We'll be back with more uncanny noises next week. Till then, bye now.